0: Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Matthew Abram. I'm the Director of the Laser and Cosmetic Center at Massachusetts General Hospital at Harvard Medical School. And I currently serve as the President of the American Society for Dermatologic Surgery. One issue that is near and dear to my heart is healthcare law. The reason for that is as physicians, we don't receive a lot of training in legal matters and they come up every day in practice. I have the experience of uh, having attended law school and uh, practice as an attorney, but most of us haven't. And for that reason, we're going to talk about healthcare law, and in particular, for those of you who have questions about contract negotiations, and that's mostly going to be people earlier in your career. But I really think this conversation and discussion applies to all of us as dermatologists. With us today, we are very fortunate to have Jim Kelso. Jim Kelso is an expert in healthcare law. He's been in practice for 23 years. He uh, served many years in-house counsel at a medical school. He has represented hundreds of dermatologists. His wife actually happens to be a dermatologist. So we're gonna talk all things about contract negotiations and other issues related to dermatology. Jim, thank you so much for joining us this evening.
1: Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. This is something that is enjoyable and fun for me to talk about. As you mentioned earlier, I started my legal career at a medical school and I used to give lectures to residents and fellows on employment contracts. And I thought it was really fun because I was able to do something beneficial. Oftentimes when you're in-house counsel, you're basically telling people, no, that's a bad idea. Let's not do that. And it was really one of the areas where I got to actually help and be proactive. So I've, I've always enjoyed doing this. And it's fun to help young people think through the early stages of their career, because you can make some mistakes. And I help people on both sides of that continuum.
0: Great. So I'm going to start with a very basic question, because, you know, physicians tend to kind of follow a set of guidelines and adhere to them when they provide medical care. Law doesn't quite treat people the exact same way. And the first question I have is, is there such a thing as a standard contract for a dermatologist entering into practice, whether it be private practice or academic practice, or does the contract represent a meeting of the minds of the prospective employee and the employer?
1: That's a really good question. There is no set, simple, basic contract template that's out there. Every health system, every practice, every attorney, every law firm has a different format. And so you see a thousand different frameworks of the relationship and how it comes together. And the best thing about a contract is also how it kind of dissolves. So you need to have a clear thing about what people are gonna be bargaining and exchanging for, exchanging labor for compensation. And then also if it doesn't match up, how can you dissolve the relationship? My dad was a physician, he was an internist. And uh, I asked him one time, I said, do you care if people get their contract reviewed who are gonna be working for you? And he said, absolutely not. Like I want those people to understand what our relationship is. And so one of the frameworks that I do regardless of the structure, the type of contract that you have, hospital based, multi-specialty based, joining a solo, joining a, a medium-sized derm practice, you know, whatever it is, private equity, my goal is to review that contract with you just like it's an informed consent. If you're going to cut a lesion off somebody's nose, they need to understand infections, disfiguring, You know, all the things that you're going to talk about and explain with them, I feel like that's my job when we review your contract.
0: Right. That's a very good way of putting it. So let me ask you, at what point in this process should a physician think about getting an attorney involved? Should it be prior to a negotiation? Should it be when the negotiations are very advanced? Is there an ideal time to seek legal advice?
1: That's another really good question. A lot of times these days, folks are starting to use offer letters. And I would say 10 years ago, people would call me when they got the contract. And I I would start from that point because that's really where the negotiation started. Generally, the resident or the fellow would go out, meet the practice and get an offer or get the actual contract. And then you would negotiate the actual contract. And now because Dermatology has seen more of a business with the infusion of private equity that there are a lot of agreements that you really need to negotiate the offer letter almost before you wait for the actual agreement to come. So if there is an offer letter, the message from the employer is, we don't want to spend a lot of money on legal fees. If you're not going to agree to our terms, these are our business proposed terms. Do you agree or not? And that's really when you start negotiating. So I help people who, you know, have told the employer, the offer letter looks great. We get the contract and it's a mess. We go back to the employer and say, this thing's a mess. The employer says, you already signed off on the business terms. And then the physician goes out and finds a new contract. So it can be everything from that kind of nasty start of a relationship to me being involved super early and saying, okay. You're on a percentage-based compensation model. It's got a tiered approach. This is what's happening. This is really where you should focus your negotiations. You can help on both sides, but once again, it's not a one-size-fits-all. And I would say having an attorney or at least understanding what you want out of a contract is really where you should start. And then once you get either the offer letter or the contract, that's really where you want to start spending money on having an attorney help you.
0: Okay. Now, one of the things that I think people early in their careers, any career, and I think for some reason in medicine, I think this is even more true. Sometimes there's a reluctance to, well, if I get an attorney involved, is that going to ruffle my future employer? Are they going to think that I'm a problem? I should really do that at the end. Address that kind of, because if people don't state it, they might be thinking it in the back of their minds, like, well, you know what, do I really want to get an attorney involved? My future employer might think that I'm a problem if I do this. I think that's an important issue maybe to address for those out there who may feel that way.
1: I think that there's a lot of folks who have an approach of DIY, do it yourself, or you can look on the internet and you can figure the things out. And some people probably can that's probably a good fit for some people. And then other people, it's probably not. But the role that I play oftentimes with my clients is in the background. They may or may not know that you have gotten an attorney involved with the contract because I'm going to go through that thing and I am going to find every red flag there is. Because what you really want is you want a business person or a person who understands the business model. I don't make business decisions the client does, but I can damn well sure say this is a bad deal or this is a non-standard frame of reference or notice period or whatever. And I can point that out and let you make the the informed decision. Okay, I'm going to deal with that or I'm going to take it on and accept it. So a lot of times when I review the agreement, the employer may or may not know that I'm even there, that my client even has an attorney. But when they're done, they're going to have a list of issues that is probably an average five to seven significant issues deep on what they should go back and talk about. And I would say probably 90% of my clients, when they're done with this process, I'm okay with knowledge transfer. I want you to be a bit smart business person. I want my wife to be a smart business person. If somebody comes up to her and makes her an offer, I mean, she's got four provider practice, 25 employees, own our own building. I don't want her to make bad decisions either. I want there to be a knowledge transfer. So by the time we're done with this agreement and the review, I want the folks who I represent to know these are the issues. You're making reasonable points. I don't ever want anybody to make an unreasonable point. I'll tell you. But that's the goal is you want somebody who's going to be a business partner to help guide you. So Oftentimes they will take that to the employer and they may not even know that the person had an attorney review it. They may. And if the employer sends back red line changes, I'll look at that. Sometimes when the agreement is rough and it's not the majority of clients who do this all with me in the background, if I'm in the foreground, that's usually because there've been some hiccups with the negotiations in the beginning. And then I'm brought in to kind of insulate the client from being the bad guy. And the only time that really works is if the contract is in a location or it's in a specific like geographic spot, or maybe it's a specialty related issue where there's not that many specialties that are offered in that area. And so they really have to kind of work together to get to the point. I would say 90% of DERMs, if they have a contract, that's a mess, they're going on to the next offer. I don't know that the employer necessarily is gonna get upset by an attorney who's a reasonable person and pointing out reasonable issues. I can't imagine they're gonna be upset. I have had an attorney get extremely mad at me because, and this is kind of a side story, this particular negotiation was a sellout to private equity and there was a clause in there about a like 180 or it was a 270 day notice period And I basically told my client on a conference call I would not sign this agreement if that stays in there. And the other side blew up at me and yelled and threw a fit about how the attorney's not supposed to make business decisions. And I'm sure that guy was going to get a bonus by closing the deal, but I didn't care. And maybe in that case, that ruffles some feathers. I don't know.
0: Right. So let's now get to the meat of this in terms of what are kind of the top maybe four or five things Granted, people are negotiating in different environments. They may be negotiating in an academic center. It may be at a private practice. It may be private equity. What are the main features of the contract that generate the most important issues in your experience?
1: The number one issue is probably compensation. So the number one thing that people used to get 10 years ago was a flat 45%. And that's kind of been pushed out the window because of the push for private equity. So The deal with private equity is that they want to send a certain percentage of the profits to Wall Street. That's arguably 20% if they can get it. If they can't get it, it's 16%. So in general, like the average MGMA type data or whatever company out there is is benchmarking data, the average overhead, let's just call it 50% overhead, 50% to the physician. So if you own your own practice, 50% would go to you in your pocket, and 50% would pay for the lights, the electricity, the medical supplies, the staff, the insurance, all that junk. Private equity comes in and tries to push that to 40%, and then they push the physician compensation to 40% and send 10% from both sides to Wall Street. When they can't do that, they want to force the younger physician to supervise a mid-level billing provider and pay them 2.5% for that supervision. That middle level billing provider, whether it's an MP or PA or whoever, is going to throw off a profit of 200 to 250 grand in most jurisdictions. When that happens, that's how they're going to make up the difference when they can't negotiate the 20% or the 16% that they want. So that's a big discussion if you're talking about the compensation, because even if you're in an old school physician owned private practice, you know, you still want to get 45%. And now the old school private practice that are owned by physicians, they don't want to pay it because they don't have to anymore because they know that private equities changed the model a little bit. So now they're offering 40% to 800 or 900,000 or 45% over eight or 900,000 and 50% over 1.5 million. And so looking at that compensation model is tricky The other thing with compensation models that you have to be aware of is how they define net collections. That's a pretty big thing. So you don't want a bunch of weird costs showing up in there. You know, there's a cost shift concept. If you're having to pay for CME on your own or malpractice, which is kind of a little bit unusual, but if you see a cost shift, that's interesting because 1% of a million dollars is 10,000 bucks. So if you're eating your own malpractice, let's say 20,000, you're paying for your own benefits or something, you know that means that that 15, 20, 25, 30,000 dollars is not going in your pocket, and if you're going to generate a million dollars that year, that means that you just lost three percent. So looking at that and appreciating what is a normal cost-expense ratio is important with compensation? Other things that come to mind are any type of liquidated damages, that's always a red flag, deficit tracking, huge red flag, because that presumes a draw-based compensation model, and when that kicks in, you don't really have a base salary, you're getting paid based on an expectation of what you're going to generate, and if you don't generate it, you're going to earn a deficit. So whenever you start, you know, DERMs want volume. And if you don't have the volume, you're going to earn a deficit. So if there's a, any type of draw, you want to look and see how that income guarantee is going to be the first year and how's that, how's that going to be structured. Uh, repayment of startup costs, big deal. And then you always want a termination without cause provision. Non-competes can be difficult. The things that come in as far as quality of life issues that I always look at are the work schedule. 8 to 5, Monday through Friday. You know, there are some practices that have restrictions because of location or whatever that may want you to work 10 to 7 or something crazy. And then Saturday clinics, most people don't want to do that. So we want to confirm what the work schedule is. And then also, we want to make sure the call is shared equally. Derm call is not normally a big deal. And then lastly, quality life side are things like practice location should be defined, The practice location should not be changed without the mutual agreement of the parties. A practice location can hurt you if there's a change, really three ways. Terrible commute, loss of patient base, which means loss of compensation. And then if you're in a state with a non-compete, it can also extend the scope of your non-compete.
0: All great points. You know, on on the subject of non-competes, there are various restrictions in various states in terms of whether or not they're enforceable, and then of course there's a degree to which the restrictive covenant can be determined by a judge to be reasonable or not reasonable. Here's the question, if you're in a jurisdiction that does not allow for non-compete clauses, if someone includes that in the in the agreement, does that give them leverage even though it's not enforceable? There are legal costs of disputing that and going to court and time and headache when you leave a practice. If you're in a jurisdiction where there were non-compete clauses are not considered valid or legal, is it still important to make sure that that's not in your contract?
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, A great example is California. I reviewed an agreement there the other day where they basically – tried to do a work around the, the prohibition against non-competes are unenforceable in California. And they tried to include one. And it was really just kind of appalling that they tried to create an in run around the rule. So non-competes are in a lot of agreements. There's a big question as to whether or not they're enforceable. The way that you punch a hole in a non-compete is that the confidentiality clause is designed to be as expansive as possible because what the employer is trying to do is to say, hey, this guy has a competitive advantage. He's got my confidential information. And so when you go to court, you basically are saying, I don't have anything that's confidential. You know, like there's patient records. I'm not keeping that. You know, like whatever this guy thinks is confidential is not really, I don't have a competitive advantage except for maybe my reputation. And so they try to enforce a non-compete based on this really broad kind of concept of confidential information gives you a competitive advantage. And the reality is that it doesn't because in medicine, it's all public knowledge, you know? Everybody, it's evidence-based medicine. It's supposed to be out there to the world. So what competitive advantage do you have if you're gonna be treating acne? None. So there's no algorithm, there's no intellectual property, there's no nothing. And when you really get to fighting about the non-compete, that's how you punch a hole in it. That's gonna cost you tens of thousands of dollars in a legal dispute, and most people would rather figure out how to work outside the non-compete if possible.
0: Okay, that's very helpful. And then another thing that I think is important, particularly for younger physicians to understand is the distinction between termination for cause and without cause. Can you just spell out the general principles there?
1: Yeah, so termination without cause basically means you should be able to terminate the agreement at any moment after giving notice. And that applies for the employer too, because if there's a personality conflict or there's some problem or COVID happens or whatever, either party may want to say, hey, this isn't going to work out anymore. You didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. We're just going to end the relationship. So termination without cause generally is a 90-day notice period you can quit whenever after giving the 90-day notice. Private equity wants to push you to 180 days and the reason why they do that is because it's a barrier for you separating. I mean like today, you'd be giving your notice to quit in June, like that's crazy. Nobody wants to like have that hanging over them. So that's where like in some of these arrangements, they're trying to figure out how to keep you and control you and fighting for the 90 day notice period is great. The reason why it's 90 days is because your new employer really can't hire you for 90 days because you have to get credentialed on new managed care plans. So it ends up being a good rule of thumb. Your old employer can find a replacement typically in 90 days if they give people a fair shake. So that's without cause termination. And then for cause termination is where they can terminate you immediately for cause. And that's generally because you've done something wrong whether you've lost your license, whether you've been convicted of a crime. The best example of an objective immediate for cause termination provision is your death. You know, it's pretty binary, you're either dead or alive. And then you get into subjective stuff, like you've placed the patient's health and safety in jeopardy, or you haven't followed the policies, or you're addicted to drugs or alcohol. And so that's where the employer kind of gets a lot of leeway into determining whether or not the subjective things have happened to terminate the contract immediately. You know, it brings up a really good point about COVID and why being an owner of a practice is important for young people. You know, there's nothing more glaring than COVID as an example of why you want to be an owner. And I get a lot of young people who say, I don't want to be an owner. And it just drives me crazy because I'm like, You want to be an owner because you want control of your destiny. You put in all this gobs of work. You have crushed it to be a dermatologist. You have kicked some serious butt to get there. And now you're going to give it up at the 11th hour and go sign with somebody who doesn't have your best interests at heart. Only you have your best interests at heart. So becoming an owner is really important. Well, COVID came in. And when COVID happened, there were people who were just firing doctors without notice, They were not even following the without cause termination notice provisions. They're forcing people to sign amendments that were, you know, basically unilateral demands. And so when you get into the termination issues, if you are a member of a practice and something like COVID happens, you get to sit down with your partners and figure out how are we going to make this work instead of just getting fired or not having control of your destiny. So I think that when young people say, I don't want to be an owner, they don't understand that they won't have a seat at the table. So if if there's five people in the group and you're the fifth one who just joined, you're going to have a 20% vote. You're also going to have a 20% right to any non-physician income that's generated. So if we go back to that whole private equity model of forcing people to supervise MPs and PAs, If you're the young dermatologist in a new group, and there's three or four MPs or PAs, you're gonna split their profit. If their profits 200 grand a year or 250 grand a year, you're gonna have to buy in a little bit more into that practice, but you're gonna get 20% of whatever that non-physician ancillary income is. Like you're giving all that up. So for me, my dad always was like, what are the attorneys doing? What are they doing? They know what's the wrong thing to do. What are they doing? I can tell you one thing. I don't know one attorney who works for a private equity-based employer. Doesn't happen. Nobody's going to give up their profit. So going back to termination, you want to be careful about COVID and weird things when you talk about immediate for because termination.
0: You know, that that's a very powerful point you made about uh, attorneys working for private equity. It's something that is... Uh, Positions we need to look at and think about long and hard. And it's great to hear a impassioned and very rational plea for having more control of both our practice and our business end of what we do as dermatologists, because that's been eroding over the last several years. So I'm going to conclude the discussion with that. Jim Kelso, it's been um, very educational and informative speaking with you this evening. Again, uh, health law issues are fundamental to what we do. And as dermatologists, a lot of us have worked very hard to where we get to. We need to make sure that we protect all that hard work and we reap the reward of all the hard work that we put in and and quite frankly, to protect ourselves. So thank you for a very informative and educational session speaking with you.
1: You're very welcome. And thank you for having me and good luck in the future and everybody be safe.